I'm excited to welcome you to the Advisory Board Insider podcast today because on this show, one of the things I love to do is talk to really fascinating, interesting people. And if you've listened to any of the, uh, listened or watched any of the shows so far, you'll know that uh, I'm talking to some people that are doing really profoundly cool things in the world. And today is no different. Today, we get a chance to talk to a teaching professor at McMaster University in Canada, and he works in the Booth School of Engineering, and he teaches leadership and management. But he's also an advisor, he's a consultant, he's a guide to many people, and he's got this fascinating journey where he started out in the uh, in the adventure, outdoor adventure stuff, and has really grown into this really cool role. And we're going to talk a lot today about a workplace ecology, and I know that you're going to uh, learn a lot from listening to Alan McKenzie, my special guest today. So get ready. We're going on an adventure. Here we go. Alan McKenzie, welcome to the Advisory Board Insider Podcast. I'm glad you're here. It's great to connect with you again, Tom, my good friend. Yeah, it's a really cool. So you and I had our very first conversation almost 25 years ago, I'd say about 24 years ago, where I interviewed you on my TV show. And I was intrigued by by what you were doing at that point in time. And I feel like it's a, it's another chance to catch up on all of the amazing things you're doing in your world and in your life. So before we get started, what are your geographic coordinates today? Where are you located? So right now I'm in my, my home office or my home studio, I like to call it, and I'm in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. And so Guelph is a little northwest of Toronto, about an hour's drive northwest of Toronto. It's a beautiful, small city of 120,000, lots of parks and waterways. And, and where I live, it's literally a, a five-minute walk or a two-minute bike ride, and we're onto a nice trail by the Speed River and up to... Guelph Lake, and it's just a beautiful little part of south, southwestern Ontario. Wonderful. So we know where you are. What do you start your day with? Let's go back and start your day. What's your drink of choice to start your day? Well, for right now, I mean, it's springtime, so I'm in a little bit of a, a cleanse, courtesy oh. of my significant other, Carmen. She likes to put us on the spring cleanse. But normally, you know, my drink of choice these days seems to be a hot chai tea, with oh. coconut milk and frothed up, a little bit of cinnamon on top. And I just like those mixtures of spices. And it's just kind of a nice, warm, comforting drink to kind of get the morning started. So is this like your own concoction or is this a, a is this a sort of a chai, I don't know, is it like a tea bag kind of thing? What's what's the process? Well, you can you can get it at your local Starbucks. You can get it there, okay. and sometimes I get it there. But we also have our, our own tea bags, and we'll we'll brew it up, and then we'll just pour it in with the mixture with the coconut milk, and it's just just and then heat it up and then froth it up, and it's great to have. But this morning you you got me in my be happy mug, just having water. So. Oh, got it. Okay, so uh, give me a sense of what your day starts like, and I realize. Because you're a professor, a teaching professor, you may be in a different space now in summertime than you are normally. But if you could sort of average your days out, what's what's the morning look like? What's your morning routine typically look like? Well, morning routine, even when I'm teaching, I try to get my classes a little later in the day because I like to kind of come into the morning sort of in a relaxed fashion. Uh, you know, we have quite an extensive backyard with lots of trees and, and perennials. And for whatever reason, our backyard is taking the interest of all the local wildlife. And so our morning for both of us is, you know, having a nice tea, but we're usually racing around, feeding the birds. We have chipmunks who show up to our door. We have squirrels. We have a special squirrel. Of course, Carmen has, has named them all Winnie. And Winnie is a pretty special Zen squirrel. She she came around two years ago, and she sometimes comes in and sits in our kitchen while we're eating breakfast, and she eats her breakfast there too. Wow, that is uh, that is yeah. interesting. A squirrel for breakfast. Uh, the Got other it. thing is, last year, just unbeknownst to us, one day this little fledgling northern starling came in and took a shine to Carmen, my my wife. And also to me, and we started feeding her and she 
hung around all summer. She left for the fall. She migrated and we thought, well, maybe she'll be back. Maybe she won't. Sure enough, she came back literally three weeks ago and is in the same routine. And so she'll literally land on our arm and eat some, you know, we, we've got the mealworms that we've got for her, or raisins, and she'll eat those. She's now feeding them to her young. Sometimes if Carmen isn't quick enough and she leaves the screen door open, it will actually fly in and land on her shoulder, like kind of hurry up. You know, I, I want my breakfast. Wow. So I'm fascinated. So my morning, you know, our mornings are pretty busy for the first couple of hours from sort of 6 a.m. till about 9.30. And then the, the frenzy sort of goes away. And then I kind of drift into my professional day. So it's a nice it. interlude into the work life. I have never heard that before. That is fascinating. So let's get a bit of your story. I'm going to dive into your story a bit. So I looked in your LinkedIn sure. profile and it seems like just before 1984. So I'm thinking, you know, early eighties is probably end of high school zone for you, wherever that is, but just kind of go back in your mind there. What are you thinking about? What's the plans for the future? What is going on in your world in terms of goals, aspirations, and where you're thinking your life will take you? Yeah, in my, that's really going back away. So it is, yeah. you know, making the gray matter work. But certainly in my early years, I mean, I've always had a love of the outdoors and, and exploring nature and, and wild places. And I wanted to be, you know, a, a, an outdoor guy. So taking people on canoe trips, rock climbing, mountain climbing. And so even in my high school years, I was taking courses and training and, and trying to go out and do things on my own. We, we lived, my parents lived on a, a body of water called the Bay of Quinty, just east of here, a couple of hours between Trenton and, and Belleville, because my father was uh, retired from the military there. And, and so, you know, I learned, taught myself how to canoe, I taught my house, mm. myself how to cross-country ski and, and all of those things. And then, you know, as I moved into my sort of senior year of high school, I, I, before I really got into going to university and doing those things, I actually went out west and continued my training. I got into becoming an assistant mountain guide. I eventually became a, a rescue specialist with the Alberta government for a year and did that. And so, you know, I, I really... Because that was really my focus. It wasn't about business at all. It wasn't even on my right. radar screen. I just wanted to spend the rest of my time outside, helping other people enjoy the outdoors and enjoying it myself. So you take on, you learn, you get those certifications and those designations. And then your, your LinkedIn profile tends to indicate you start down that path of being sort of an adventure guide, an outdoor adventure Give me mm -hmm. a sense of those early days in adventure tourism, adventure travel. What were some of the deep lessons you're learning early on before even the business thing starts to emerge? There's, I can only imagine there's really intense, cool lessons that you get from rescuing people off mountains, uh, dealing with, you know, these yeah. kind of challenging situations out in the wilderness. Well, you certainly become an appreciation of, of your humanness. I don't know how else mm. to say it, you know. Whenever I go to the outdoors, I always, you know, if you find yourself filled with ego, just spend some time in the wilderness. You know, that yeah. ego drifts away pretty quickly because it doesn't really care about you as a person. It just does what it does and you have to adapt. So mm. I think, you know, that leads me to the other one is, is you know, how do you, how do you adapt to your conditions? How do you recognize when you have capabilities to do some time, do things and when there are times that you know, maybe this isn't the best day to go to the top or, you know, that thunderstorm's coming down the valley pretty fast. The snow conditions are strange. You know, maybe it's just time to, you know, stay a little lower and enjoy the valley today. You know, kind of making those critical decisions that can literally be life and death. And, you know, as opposed to kind of just making general decisions in, in your normal day. Right. The other thing that, you yeah. know, I've taken forward into my career is, I'm always amazed when other, when I'm helping other people enjoy the outdoors, especially couples. I can tell really quickly in a short period of time, especially if somebody, you know, you know, a couple has been together just for a short period of time. May, maybe they just got married or they've been married for a little while and we're in an outdoor activity, whether that's, you know, climbing or whitewater canoeing, where they have to work together. 
I can tell pretty quickly where they're going to run into problems down the road if they don't do really? some address some of these concerns pretty quickly. Well, that that they, that they lose their ego. ego. Yeah, give me an example. Like, well, give me a real world example of that. So I had a couple. You know, whitewater canoeing. I always enjoy teaching people whitewater canoeing. And before we ever go down the river, we we spend a day in a in a sort of easy set of rapids, and we they get used to how the canoe moves in the white water. And it's really more about shifting their weight and, you know, and recognizing the canoe in itself is, is not necessarily safe. You've got to adjust. It's like on your bike, you've got to move to the, the movement of where you're going. And so, really? you know, you'll have somebody in the, the back of the canoe, the stern of the canoe, you know, kind of calling out the commands and where they have to go. And then the person in the bow or the front of the canoe is really, you know, they're either paddling madly or they're reaching out with their paddle to brace against the, the waves that are bouncing them around to act like almost like an outrigger. And it's it's funny, you know, when, when I see people, they're trying to communicate with each other. They get into these arguments, go, no, I'm not going to do this now or, or that's too late. And, and there's, they spend their time arguing. And the next thing you know, their canoe's flipped over and they're drifting down the, the river. And it's fascinating to watch. Yeah. And when we taught that, we would videotape people. And people wouldn't yeah. believe us when, you know, I'd rescue them and pull them back into their canoe. It was pretty standard practice. It's not, yeah. a, not a scary thing. You know, they get up and do it again. They're soaking wet, but that's the way it is. And I say to them, you know, you've got to really get your signals correct. Oh, oh yeah, we're doing that. We're doing that. And then, you know, later on in the evening, we'd go out to dinner and we went to this special restaurant near the Madawaska River where we did our, a lot of our teaching in Ontario. And, you know, we'd put up a TV screen and plug in, you know, back in the day when they're VHS tapes, yeah. we'd plug in the tape. And they would see themselves and hear themselves and they would just be astonished at mm. how poor they were at communicating or that they were kind of barking at each other and not really listening. It was really interesting to watch. It was very humbling for them, that's for sure. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So it seems to me then, and when I first intersected with you, it was with when you had a company called The Adventure Begins. And it seems mm -hmm. like right in that time frame, you were marrying outdoor adventure to business. So what kind of transitioned you into more a business focus versus purely an outdoor adventure focus? Yeah, so the, the early days of The Adventure Begins was just that. It was very outdoor-focused. It was kind of a training and development company for people wanting to learn outdoor skills to go out and it, so they could experience it on their own. They wouldn't have to go with, you know, in my early years, I would guide people. And, and they, so they could go out without a guide, whether that was a wilderness canoe trip, to go rock climbing, to go mountaineering, those types of things. So. We taught a whole lot of fundamental skills from climbing to canoeing to navigation, wilderness first aid, those types of things. And then we started to get contacted by corporations, mostly mm. through people that I graduated with and they gone on and moved on to their careers and they were with companies and, you know, we remained friends and they're like, hey, you know, can you take our group, you know, rock climbing for the day or can you go take us on a high ropes course, do some experiential learning that was the time we sort of met we were, were kind of growing that side of the business so yeah. there was kind of the for a better word the public side and then there was the corporate side that we were growing and even that morphed again where all of a sudden people were asking about well you seem to be really yeah i'll never forget this we were finishing off one of our climbing days and one of our climbing instructors vic was going out with a woman who worked at Ontario Hydro. She was a senior engineer and manager at Ontario Hydro. And we would always finish our day with a, with a debrief and we would facilitate that. Just, you know, what went well, what could we approve on, you know, before we all went out and enjoyed a beer at the local pub and just taking the, the rest of the weekend. And afterwards, you know, I was sitting beside her and she, we were having a beer and she said, I worked at Hydro for 10 years. And I've never seen a manager facilitate a session like you guys do your instructor debriefs. Can you mm. come and teach that to us? And that spawned just a whole other direction. And what that ended up doing in the adventure begins 
was we then became a training and development company, but more in the ideas of soft skill development, how to facilitate a conversation, how to have a difficult conversation, how to bring on new employees, how to deal with conflict and give constructive feedback. And so we had these mini sessions as well as we continued on our experiential learning division in using outdoor activities to bring teams together. Because that was a time when lots of companies were merging or, or there was mergers yep. and acquisitions and they were buying up each other. And, and, and now you'd have a whole bunch of people together that didn't really know each other. How could they come together quicker? And we used outdoor activities and then ongoing training sessions afterwards to improve the output or the performance of those groups and teams. And it seems like from there, you move fully into the business side instead of yeah. focusing on the adventure side and ad using adventure as a, as a toolkit to personal development and even business development. It seems like from there, you move fully into business focus, training, development work, uh, support, consulting, those kind of things. So give me a sense of the journey from there to where you are now as the professor of leadership and management, a teaching professor of leadership and management at the Booth School of Engineering at McMaster University in Hamilton. So like there's a whole lot of world in there yeah. from when you and I first met to where you are sitting as a professor now at a major university in Canada in yeah. leadership. And I get the leadership and that part of it, leadership and management, I get it. But give me the journey because I think it's it's important for people wanting to know who you are to understand the morphing mm -hmm. of the adventure guy to the business training guy to now a professor of leadership. Give me the short story on that. Sure. The short story. I'll try to give it in short story. Well, I mean, it's a 25 you know, the, year it, thing. So I, I get that. It's yeah. So how, how do we, how do we put it in depending on your audience age, you know, the Coles notes version of this. Well, the adventure begins, there was an opportunity to sell that organization. So I took advantage of that and we actually cast off the two divisions. So we had our public outdoor training, which we sold to another person who was beginning that journey and, and that accelerated mm -hmm. that for them. And then another larger organization wanted to incorporate our experiential, uh, they were doing part of that as well, but more the soft skills training. And so we sold that division to them. And so that left me at a bit of a crossroads. And so at the same time, you know, I was getting involved in enhancing my own learning journey. You know, I was yeah. taking HR and became HR certified. I was working, you know, kind of part-time in those areas for a few companies. And one of the things I recognized was there was lots of organizations that really didn't know how to scale themselves. And, mm. and that's on a whole other company that I created, uh, starting with a couple of partners and then eventually on my own called Empower Business Guides. And that was really dealing with, you know, small and medium-sized enterprises and going in and helping them develop the structure around their organization so that they could scale and grow without imploding or, you mm. know, worse, the business owner getting sick or you know, worse, having a heart attack, something like that, because it was just too much to look after. And I, I used a number of different tools to assist with that process. I started that model more on a coaching kind of guiding perspective. But then again, based on demands, there was more of a, a demand for us to actually insert us into organizations and actually mm. build systems and processes for, you know, maybe a couple of years or guide the managers and organizations in how to do that. And then we would pull ourselves out. Mm. And so I did that for almost a decade. Wow. And then what happened was I missed the kind of training and development. And I started to get involved in, you know, I became HR certified. I'm an HR certified professional, both here in Canada as well as globally. And I wanted to give back. And so I got involved in teaching at local colleges. And, and for your American listeners, those would be institutions that offer associate degrees. So usually two-year degrees, very hands-on and practical education. 
And so mm-hmm. I would get involved in, in teaching courses to people who wanted, who are aspiring to be HR professionals. And so I was teaching training development, compensation, strategy, all of those types of courses. I really enjoyed it, but I was doing it on a part-time basis. And then for whatever reason, I caught the eye of a, a university called Wilfrid Laurier University, somebody in the organizational behavior department, heard about my teaching and asked me to come teach a course with them one fall, which I did. And I really enjoyed that with nature and management course. And then an opportunity came on for a full-time position there. And I took that on as a, a lecturer and did that for two and a half years. And then at the same time, I'm not a linear career path person. I, I do things um, at the same time. You know, I could be doing this, but I'm also doing that. And at the yeah. same time, I was also teaching in a, a program that was just starting at McMaster in called the Bachelor of Technology program. And I, I got that connection because it's connected to a college and the student get both a university degree and a college diploma. Yeah. And so I started teaching there part-time as well as I was doing, you know, like my full-time gig at Laurier. And then the director of that program asked me, he goes, you know, we've been doing this for five years. We need somebody to come in and audit all the management courses. It's a really unique engineering program, Tom, because most engineering programs are very technically oriented, but then engineers go out into the real world and they realize they have to deal with constraints of time money? Are they building a product that a customer really wants? That's not an inward focus all the time. And so the program was developed that taught transferable skills to students in business and management. And it's built, baked right into the curriculum. It's not a, you know, elective courses. And so this director wanted me to kind of come in and evaluate where it was. And I got leave from my job at Laurier to do it over the summer. And I, you know, I met with a number of stakeholders and industry people, and then I submitted a whole report. And, and one thing's in that report, I said, you know, you need somebody to oversee this component because all the students take these management courses, like a thousand students, and there's really no one looking after it other than the instructors teaching their individual courses. And then that led to a conversation of, well, would that be you? And, <laughs> and I was like, well, I already have a full-time job. This is not a part-time job. And, and then it became, oh, you know, we'll have to put it out there. You know, it's a university. You know, we'll have to go through the whole recruiting process and hiring. I said, that's fine. And, and again, we kept the channels open and eventually it got posted. And I was asked to apply and I got accepted into that role in 2012, January 2012. And I've been at McMaster full-time ever since. And I started as the inaugural management chair of the pro- undergraduate program in the Booth School. And I did that for six years because that's how long an administrative appointment is. And I passed the baton on. And now I'm fully engaged in teaching and supervising graduates. Wow. That's, that's, well, I don't know really... if that's, a, that's the Coles notes no. version. Yeah. But I, I think it's, it's really, it's really helpful to understand the arc of the, you know, that history from adventure to training to development to those sort of roles that you play along the way that keep informing you on stuff, because it's not like you've been a teacher your whole life. You have, you've been a teacher at no. your heart, but it, you've been involved in different businesses, helping them structure things, helping them set it up and then coming back and going, I want to teach and train, but still involved. And so I think that really informs where we're going now, which is you're teaching regular leadership and management skills. You've had all this history and experience. There's something that stood out on your your profile that just caught my attention. And this is where I want to dig in for the next little while, which is you call yourself a workplace ecology strategist. And that term jumped off the the page to me. And I'm fascinated by that, that line. So first, can you define what that is? And then how does that translate to business organizational life? Tell me more about workplace ecology strategist. Sure. So. I mean, I was looking for something that really fit with my unique skill sets, because as you've been chatting, I mean, I have quite a different journey yeah. than most people involved in business. You know, and along the way, of course, I did my education and certifications and got an MBA and did all those traditional things. Yep. But I just wanted something that said there are things that have imprinted me from a very early age that I see value in its transference. So what I do, you know, when I'm not 
teaching or, or supervising grad students, I still have a consulting company, which I call um, Workscape O2, O2 standing for oxygen. And mm. I work with progressive business leaders and, and their teams to create workplace environments that foster you know, more engagement, well-being of employees, and improve their overall organizational capacity. And I do this, and why I call it an ecologist strategist is I come from a perspective of looking at the organization holistically and coming from a perspective of nature. I I look at Mm -hmm. organizations, in my mind, I think organizations are a living ecosystem. And I look at that interplay of a living ecosystem. They're not machines to be tweaked and, and fixed. That's the industrial age. You know, we're long past that. You know, technology right. and, and, and certainly things from our pandemic of changing the workplace environment and the workplace landscape has altered organizations and will continue to do so moving forward. And so it's embracing looking at it holistically. And then what I do is I, I try to look at kind of through three lenses. I look first at employee health and well-being. And I don't like to call them employees. I like to call it talent because, you know, employees right away almost gives that sort of subsarian aspect, you know, you will serve me. In reality, I like to think of employees as volunteers. If you think about them in that way, they don't have to show up every day. That will change your perspective and how you work with them. Mm. Then I also don't want to avoid the things that make organizations tick. You know, I like to call organizational enablers. What are the systems and processes? How do we structure ourselves? How do we make decisions? How do we create a strategy that's going to serve us, you know, in the short term and also in the long term? And there needs to be alignment with those. And then the last area really brings in my sort of early development, you know, from high school on is this idea of restorative design built into the built environment. And that's really in a short sort of cell is to bring nature inside. And I don't know if you've ever heard of a concept called biophilic design. Have you ever heard of that before? No, but just the word itself is really cool. So biophilic. Biophilic design. And it originates from the Greek term, so bio, meaning nature, and then phila, meaning the love of living things. Mm. And it was, it's really about, even though we've progressed as a human species, our DNA is really deeply ingrained of living off the land and evolutionary, you know, we, that's really where we are. You know, I like to say sometimes we're, we're nothing more than monkeys with car keys. I mean, (laughs) we have a primary brain, you know, we, sometimes we make these decisions that don't seem very rational and that's because we're going more from a primordial perspective. And we really have an affiliation with, Think about when you want to relax, you tend to go to a park, you look outside, you go to the beach, you go for a walk. You don't tend to sit in a cubicle at a workplace. That's not where you find that regeneration. So how do we build elements? Because that really can impact talent, productivity, how people communicate together. It informs how an organization works. Things like, and there's been a great deal of research in this area was popularized by a gentleman, I'm trying to remember his name right off the top of my head, Edward Wilson. He was an evolutionary biologist. He's no longer with us at Harvard. And he kind of popularized the term in for about 30 years ago. And architects, uh, design engineers, you know, people working in the built environment, biophilia isn't new, but for regular workplaces, it absolutely is, especially people in human resource or, or talent management. And, so, you know, studies so, of, you know, have natural light and those types of things in your, in your organization, your, your, sorry, your office. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to hit on that because you, you called it restorative design and then biophilic design, but that's not, it's not primarily that you've got a pool table because, you know, pool tables and things like that were kind of hot for a while, but you're talking about the very structure of the way you know, the office flows and the light coming in and those things. It's not so much that you've added these cool cultural, what are often called cultural initiatives, which, you know, let's add a pool table and put in a cool, you know, bar in the cafeteria or whatever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about fundamentally the way that 
the layout is, the way the structure is. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not taking away from the pool table or the, or the nice kitchen. You know, that's, that can be helpful too. But do people have access to natural light? We, we mm. know that that improves productivity. But mm. what's the view from your window? You know, if you can look out over, you know, there's been a, a great study that it was at a University of Wisconsin where, you know, people were in a call center at the, you know, kind of administrative center at this university. And half the windows looked out on sort of parking lot and road. And the other half of the windows looked out on sort of the, the campus green. And then they, they measured the productivity as well as doing surveys with the employees to find out, you know, how did they feel? They're, they looked at sick days, those types of things. And it was much, much lower for people who had the, the view of nature looking out their Same. window, even though everyone had a view. They just had a different view. Uh, there's been some seminal research in the healthcare field that really sort of started this where, again, people looking out who were recovering from gallbladder surgery, some people looked out a window and just saw the opposite side of the hospital. Other people in the same recovery area looked out their window and could see greenery, the, the sort of inner courtyard garden that the hospital had. And again, the people recovering, they recovered quicker. They used less pain medication. They're, you know, they, they tended to get along better with their, the nursing staff. They weren't as grumpy with them, yeah. uh, those types of things. It, it's also bringing natural materials in like wood and mm. uh, you know, stone, have green walls. Could you have a water feature? If you can't bring greenery in, can you have kind of texturing that looks like nature? And even how you, you space things out, you know, there's this concept in biophilia about prospect and you know, refuge. So prospect is you like to see things in the distance. You know, you know, we're we're on the plane, you know, we've got predators that are after us. That's why houses on a hill or have a good view tend to sell for more money because we feel safer in order to look out and, and see where things are coming. At the same time, we don't want things coming behind us. So we want a place that's a little cozy that is private and quiet that we can regenerate. So mm. it's kind of finding a balance within whatever the enterprise has to offer to bring in as many of these elements as possible. And not all organizations can do it. Depends on whether it's a brand new footprint that they're building or are they adapting a footprint or they are left with a footprint. What are some of the small things that we can do that could bring in kind of this restorative idea into the workplace. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Yeah. So you talk about these three different elements of of the talent and the health and, and well-being of the talent, what you called the enablers or the systems and processes, and then this design, this restorative design or biophilic design. So what happens when an organization hears the design part of it, but are limited by capacity because they can't go through and put everybody at windows because frankly, they're in a crappy building and they don't have that. Oh, you, you come into that situation as the person who is the advisor or guide and, and how do you encourage them? Because ultimately I think all of this is towards both the health of the employee and the, the vitality of that employee to support the system that's producing an outcome mm -hmm. um, without them being aut yeah. automatons or anything. But how do, how do you do it in a way that that actually gets the result when you're limited by constraints? Well, it's interesting you say that, and you're right, there, there is a great deal of constraints within organizations and, and not everybody is coming back to workplaces as they did pre-pandemic. Right. So I always start with the talent first. That's the first place I, I look at. And I, I look at a number of elements. I look first at you know, what's the physical and emotional health, you know, employees have, you know, what, what opportunities do they have to, you know, do they get benefits? Do they have, you know, decent breaks? Do they have flexible schedule? Does it offer, you know, the environment offer neurodiversity in the sense that, you know, some people like yourself is more of an extrovert. Believe it or not, I'm more of an introvert. So even though we could be working together, we, we have different needs within the organization. Mm -hmm. And can that organization accommodate those individual needs to get the best out of that individual. I also look at, you know, whether people are engaged in their work. You know, we're all familiar in the workplace area of the Gallup surveys and, and the amount of disengagement that's going on. Right. You know, are people able to use their skills and strengths and, you know, to really to, to apply their role or even to the point of 
you know, I mean, that famous uh, psychologist, Mikhail Chuck Munkali, you know, talks about this idea of flow, you know, where you actually yeah. lose track of time. And I'm not saying every workplace activity is going to be flow, but we tend to have, if we work toward their strengths, we, we can get, we can get there in some of them. I also look at the relationships that people have with their coworkers. You know, is there an environment of sort of psychological trust going on? Those types of things. Personal relationships can really amplify productivity in organizations right. and supporting right. each other. I, I look at whether people find meaning from their work and how they, you know, do they, they see something bigger than themselves or their role? And then lastly, of course, is there opportunity for them to achieve? Can they increase their competencies? Can they get mastery and, and achieve success? Those types of things. So I start there first, because right. no matter what kind of facility you're in, it really is, you know, this whole approach of mine is, a, is very people-centric. That's why I called it Workplace O2, because I see the, the concentric circles, and I'll actually put up a diagram for you, because sometimes it's, it's easier to see it. You know, there's a Venn diagram, there and I put go. O2 in the middle, because that's really where those things all touch. That enriches the oxygen, mm -hmm. and, and that's really about, you know, oxygen is what gets us going. You know, and, and helps us to flourish. So I start there. Then the next place I go is I look at the organizational enablers. And again, is there alignment? You know, many times, you know, people talk about, well, you know, I, I don't really feel like I fit here. or I don't really know what we're about. And then you find out the organization really isn't communicating clearly their vision and their purpose, or, or they really haven't even codified that in any way that gets traction. I look at, you know, the collective knowledge and skills. Do people have the tools and resources to do their jobs? What's the culture of the organization? What's the leadership like? And, and you know, what are they measuring? What are the performance indicators? Do they have the right technology in place? And I'm not an expert in any of these things. What right, I'm right. good at is, is facilitating discussions and dialogue and asking questions and then bringing in other subject matter experts. Let's say there's a technology gap. By no means am I a CIO. There are people who are well qualified to do that. Let's figure out what it is that we need and how do we go through that process? I can help a firm do that. Then the last place is the restorative design. Mm. And that, like you said, could really be constrained by the actual facility. So it might be something really small. I'll give you an example of my real life. You know, I work at a university. And universities don't think of restorative design. That's right. not on yeah. their radar. You know, I'm a, I'm a public university. And so, you know, it's paid with not all, but a lot of taxpayer dollars and, and donations from corporations. And my office has a beautiful window, floor to ceiling windows that looks out onto a main road. So it's not great. It's kind of this bluish gray color. I can't grow a plant in there to kill myself. It just doesn't work. So. What I've done to kind of bring a little bit of this in is I have stands of timber, like wood, like branches. So it's non-living uh, in a nice sort of vase. I hmm. have a little emulator that kind of puts out sense of forest, like cedar and things like that when I'm at the office. So I get that sense of smell. I have a beautiful long photograph of I'd like to go to the Adirondacks in, in upper New York State and, and hike and, and climb and bike. And I have a beautiful picture of the, some of the top peaks in the Adirondacks in the fall. It's a gorgeous picture. And I have that looking right from my desk. And I have native artwork that is more, for a better word, abstract. Mm -hmm. And so it's open to interpretation. So those are small ways that I can bring that restorative design into a space that is really constrained. You know, I can't knock out my walls. Right. I can't even repaint them. Yeah. Right. So there are ways of doing things for sure. Yeah. I find in my work, which is coaching business owners a lot of the times, not necessarily in mm -hmm. large entities, but smaller ones, I find that by far the biggest challenge comes back to what you said, talent. Like that's, that's the starting place. That's mm -hmm. where all of the, that's where all of the pain is are the people issues. And so a lot of times huh? at right now in the world, and I'm interested in your perspective on this in terms of the roles you play and the, the seat that you sit in in the world, entry-level labor is just a nightmare right now for people. I mean, people are really mm -hmm. struggling to find labor. 
And then as you as you kind of move through organizations, you get into white collar work, especially, you know, in the high tech sectors and places like that, there's massive amounts of turnover. There's, you know, people are getting hired. And then a year later, the whole, you know, they're cutting, killing swaths of people. And so there's yeah. there's this really complicated world. And so I guess, how does this workplace ecology map to this current reality of the funkiness of the labor markets and the current workplace market? Well, you know, I would argue, you know, let's take those technology companies, you know, the big ones, you know, Facebook or sorry, Meta, yep. Twitter, you know, LinkedIn, Microsoft, you know, they, they hired a whole bunch of people when the pandemic was full on yep. and they hired them from a perspective of, even though they're in high tech and sort of very leading edge firms, from the perspective of the industrial revolution and that idea of, well, if I want to sell more, I'm going to hire a whole lot more sales or business development people. If we want to get more products out there, we're going to hire a whole bunch more software engineers. The more coders we have, the more products we're going to get out there and the more quality they're going to be. And then when things pull back, they're left with this global people that they no longer can afford and then they have to let them all go. They didn't come from a, an ecosystem perspective and looking at, okay, Please. how can we build but remain agile in the sense that do we really need that many people? Or let's look inward. What do people do right now? What would be things in the role that they'd like to step up to? Is there somebody that may not be fully deployed in one of the department and can we train them to work in this department? Now, many, many years ago, I did some consulting with RIM, now BlackBerry. And one of the areas that, and this is going back in, you know, recessions before, and they were scaling and trying to grow. And the difficulty that they were finding was technical people would go out to industry conferences and they would run into other developers and they go, yeah, you know, send in your resume. Yeah, we really need you. You know, they, right. then they go back to the office, a couple of weeks would go by and they'd never hear anything. And then they, you know, they contact them and go, well, yeah, HR never called us back. And it's like, well, you're fully qualified. But what was happening was people in HR really didn't, if they didn't use the language on their resume or their CV in the same way that they expected it to be, because they weren't technical experts, they dismissed them as not being good candidates. And so what I did was we took people who were technical people and offered them an opportunity for a short period of time to become recruiters for the organization as a lateral move and as a way to develop other competencies. And in a very short period of time, it helped that need that they had for more talent because they, those people recognized what different types of code and things that they were looking for, because when it was on the resume, they had that experience. We just taught them the recruiting and HR skills, how to ask the right questions, how to ask questions that won't get you in trouble with, you know, human rights and things right. like that, yeah. how to communicate effectively with your talent or your, your candidates. So big organizations and smaller, you also alluded to small organizations, especially entry-level employees. You know, I've seen, you know, and we're both mature individuals given by our, our hair color and things like that. You know, when we started off out in industry, people gave us training. We, we had maybe came with education that gave us a, a broad understanding of how to learn and, and we could critically think and do those things. But we didn't have specific skill sets. Companies provided those. Right. And that's really gone away in the entry level side of things. You know, we expect people to come. My students are, you know, are expected to come literally out of the university test tube, ready to go. And yeah. that's what companies are looking for. And you're not going to get entry level employees. You've got to come again from their perspective, come from that human centric. Imagine yourself as that young person starting out where you didn't have skills in a certain area. What would make you go work for an organization. Well, it, yes, compensation is one thing. And, and I'm not saying that you don't want to pay people appropriately, but do you offer training? The other yes. big part is ongoing training. Other skill, not just training, do your job, but other skill development so that you actually can take care of your own internal brand. Do you get mentoring? That's the other thing young people are missing in the workplace today. Those are ways that we could really, I think, amplify helping 
entry-level employees and, and deal with some of the issues that some of these companies are dealt with. They can't come from, hey, I pay you, so come work for me. That's not good enough anymore, right? People, yeah. people are looking for flexibility, autonomy, development opportunities, connection. How do you provide those things, even at an entry level? And the thing that's going to come back, and I hear all the time, well, we're going to put all this time and money and effort, and then they're going to leave. Yes. Absolutely, as they yes. should. And when they leave, what are, what's the story they're going to leave with? They should leave with a story of, hey, I work for this cool little company. You know, I, I did this entry-level job. It was data entry. I, heck, I, I, but then they taught me how to do accounting and bookkeeping. Then I went to school at night and I got my financial advisor certification. And now I'm, now I'm in banking. I wouldn't have got that start without them. Imagine that story going over and over and over, telling them to their friends and, and then their circle of influence as it grows and grows. That's just the cost of doing business. And we can't yeah. think of people as machines anymore. That, well, that's, I, I, that's how I see the psychology coming into perspective. Yeah, I think it's such a powerful thing that you've just said. And I think it's a lot of times why smaller businesses often lose out to larger businesses because larger business have these structures that they can take people through a pathway. And one of the things mm -hmm. I say to my clients mm -hmm. and, and teaching which is you have to give in smaller business, you have to give your new employees a visual of a bigger future they can have from being with you, right? So there's some bigger future for you and it may not be here because we're a small business, but if you work with us, you're going to go through a series of steps and, and you're gonna learn some stuff that gives you a bigger future. But I have to map that out instead of the traditional way we did it, which like you said, we hire a body to fill a slot for 25 bucks an hour. And that's all we think about it. We don't give them mm -hmm. training. We don't give them a future. We hold them at $25 an hour as long as humanly possible because well, they're just an asset. The problem is these assets show up with an attitude. And if you don't give them a bigger future, then they go somewhere else. So I, I think it's a really important distinction yeah. as you think about ecology, which is, I love your concept of volunteer, but also of how this thing all works together because it makes a difference on how you think about your employees, how you think about your team, how you think about the environment they're in, how you think about the systems and the supporting mechanisms behind that. Yeah, let's jump into a little bit of focus on really what the what the focus of our this podcast is about, but it it sometimes just gets sort of shoved to the edges, but I think it's really important. How does what you've seen over the years working in the in this school of engineering because obviously a lot of people leaving engineering are going into really cool environments and you've been at it long enough that you mm -hmm. likely see people who go from being a student to being a VP to being a whatever they end up being, and then they, they come back and undoubtedly you have conversations. What are you seeing as it relates to this ecology people focus that you uniquely take as it relates to how companies, leadership and companies are thinking about it and getting advice related to this, whether it be in an advisory board or hiring somebody like you as an advisor, how are you seeing that evolve? Are they hungry for this kind of input, insight, direction? Well, Speaking from a, from our graduates' perspective, you know, so you know, I teach in an under, you know, primarily undergraduate program, yep. and I supervise graduate students on community projects where they go out in the community and work for the community park. Our students are in a four and a half year program, and so they actually graduate in December. That they're finished their their schooling, and then a regular engineering program goes until till May. And when we get to convocation, which is in June. I, you know, you go to convocation and you meet with the students, you know, they've been out and they, they get, meet their parents. It's a, it's a grand event. I, I, I love going to those. But when I'm having conversations, it's a mixture of the students have graduated from the WBU school, as well as students who graduated in the more traditional engineering programs, such as electrical, civil, mechanical, mm -hmm. who haven't had any business in management training. The first and foremost thing almost every one of our graduates is employed. In that short yeah. period of time between basically January and May, and almost exclusively, what gets them hired? It's like the, their technical background gets them the company and it's a tick box. But what makes it work is 
oh, you can come from the perspective of management and business. You have an understanding of those transferable skills. Uh, you know, I like to think of it as a T-shaped professional. So imagine a vertical axis yeah. is the, their depth of knowledge and their technical expertise. And then the T across the top is horizontal, transferable knowledge, understanding of marketing, uh, human behavior, finance, a strategy. And it's those intermixings that work. And the other thing I see with our graduates, because I keep hooked up with them on LinkedIn, is they accelerate much faster in their careers. You were talking about that trajectory. I'm not saying that engineers don't go on to become VP managers and VPs and, and CEOs. Many do. But the accelerated process that our graduates in the Booth School go through that is much, much quicker. A few years ago, we had a, a student who was the very first Canadian from an engineering school to be hired at Tesla. Mm. And he, in a very short period of time, became a senior manager in that organization down in California within four years. Unheard of in an engineering sort of mixture of business and engineering field. And I, and I see similar types of attributes. And so I think coming from that engineering background, I mean, engineers like to think things are right or wrong, right. they're black yeah. or white, the formula is yeah. correct or it's not correct. And then they come to my classes or my uh, structure and it's just like, well, it depends. You know, it depends on the situation. And, yeah. and can you read what's going on? And what I tend to get a lot of afterwards is sometimes during the time they're here, I'll be quite honest, I, I don't get a lot of, you quoted this term, a lot of fresh air. They're like, oh, why do we have to take this course, sir? I, you know, I really like to, you know, build things. I like to build robots, do all this stuff. But then when they get out in industry, I get these amazing letters from graduates. I'm so glad I took your course. You were so right. You know, I have to work in this team. It's complicated. People are, they have different personalities. And I was going back to my course notes on motivation. And to me, that's the greatest attribute I can ever get. So I always like to say, I get my fresh air a few years later. I never get at the end of the yeah. course year. I always get it after they graduate. And yeah. so there is a huge demand going back to your question of advisory boards. I think companies need people who understand the human element and can help other people be open to it. You know, I, and I'm not trying to ignore it. The companies need to be financially stable. They need to have a good strategy. They need to have great marketing and reasonable technology to do what they need to do. But without the people, who cares? Right. You know, what are you keeping track of? There's, there, you've got nothing. And I think once you start switching your mindset to the idea, just using the words talent as opposed to employees, that right away shifts your mindset. You know, words are very powerful. Language is extremely powerful. That's why I never really like, you know, even though I'm a certified HR professional, I don't like to use the word HR because it's human resources. Again, you're thinking of it as something like capital. But they... Right. Like you said, you know, they, they go out the door every night and do they come back the next morning? When you yeah. start thinking about is talent management or talent facilitation, talent coaching, just that language alone starts to shift things. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Have you engaged in advisory boards, advisory panels, think tanks to support businesses? Have you had that opportunity? Tell me a little bit about your, your experience in and around that. So I've had it at two levels. So I've had a lot of not-for-profit advisory boards with associations, the Institute for Can you know Can Institute of Canadian Management, yeah, the Human Resource Association, Chamber of Commerces. You know, there's some incubators that I'm involved in at the university as well. And so a lot of that tends to be either sitting in a sort of committee meeting in that area and providing support and advice. Or as you said, you know, especially these incubators, being on a panel, you're being the guest speaker, you're invited in. For instance, I, I did, this was over in Singapore and I did it remotely, but I, I gave a guest speaker spot for a skills development organization that's global in nature. And it was around most specifically restorative design. But I've also done advisory boards in the, it's so before I jump on those, one of the things with not-for-profit is they can be very committee oriented. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, unless you've worked in the academic side of things, I, I almost like to think of myself as a, a reluctant academic. I'm not a traditional academic. You know, I didn't yep. 
study and, and go from undergraduate to graduate to, to right. PhD to then into university. I, you know, I worked out in the real world and I chose in the sort of third act of my career to come and, and help educate what I felt would be the next generation of leaders in young people, as well as how helping professional practitioners who may be coming back to uh, university for extra training. One of the things that in universities and, and sort of not-for-profits is very sort of structured and committee. They're not sort of, they're not advisory boards in the true sense because they don't yeah. take advantage of what advisory boards can offer. They don't take advantage of really saying, where are our needs? Do we need help yeah. in talent? Do we need help in finance? Do we need help in business development? Who can we bring on our board? that has the skills, but also is aligned with the mission of our organization. And more importantly, will we listen to them? And so my experience for for-profit advisory boards has been mostly with organizations that are kind of, I would say mid-size. So, yep. so kind yep. of anywhere between 150 to 1,000 employees. And for instance, I have a client that I've, I've worked, you know, as advisor for close to 20 years now, actually, believe it or not. I mean, this, so they've seen my morphing of my career as well. In the, in the private healthcare field in Canada, which is unusual, but they, they own multiple clinics on, across the province of Ontario. And I, in my role there as an advisor, what I've done is I've taken it a little bit farther than just offering sort of advice and questions. I actually facilitate their senior management meeting every month. And so we, mm. we have it every month. And so I take on a, a facilitator role to ensure that everybody can get their message across, where they see things going. And it also allows the CEO, who's also a healthcare practitioner who has learned the business. Again, they were an expert in healthcare and then had to learn the business model to sit back and kind of take it in. And, and people, what happened out of that is people don't feel the pressure of, well, this is what the boss wants. Right. I would say this, I push so that people put opinions on the table in a safe element that we can digest those and see what works and what may not work in the foreseeable future. Yeah, that's so good. So, so it's good. been an interesting experience. Another that's one really with a creative firm, they were 150 and, and I facilitate, again, I, I came to them when they were like, the owner wanted an exit, you know, he wanted it quickly. And, you know, sitting on the advisory board, I said, it's not going to be, well, you can, you can exit quick, but you're not going to get what you want for it because um, right. there's nothing here for anyone. You've got a list of customers, but what a, what's somebody buying? And so we had to spend a few years putting in a lot of structure and making sure we had the right people on the team so that they could offer a full package. And, and ultimately he did divest that and, and get it for sale. And then has now since retired, moved from Ontario out to uh, Whistler, BC. So that's a great life. So one of the things you talked about is this sort of perspective you bring, which is talent focused people, but the ecology side of it. So when you sit on an advisory board, and not, I'm not talking about the facilitation part, but you're, you're one of the seats on the advisory board. Is that kind of the thing that you're watching for and listening for is how does the, the people intersect with the systems and processes with the with this design around here? Is that the place you often sit as an expert on the on advisory board or or what's the superpower you bring to bear if you're sitting on that seat? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. And I mean, I can't help but think strategically. Yeah. I, you know, it just it just is in my mindset. It's almost the first place I go. I start asking the who, what, why, where questions. Um, what fits with what? I'm looking at where there are gaps. And and I think, I don't know if it's a superpower, but it, you know, sometimes it can work in the opposite way. Uh, it's too big picture. But that, that tends to be what I can offer. You know, do I have subject matter expertise with, with working with, with people and talent? Absolutely. Uh, do I understand, you know, management and motivation? Uh, and I've worked for a lot of different organizations, both working in them as well as consulting with them. But I yeah. think being able to think strategically and offer that, and I'm not talking about creating a strategy, that's important too, but just the mindset around people get lost in the micro very, very quickly and they, they start working on a symptom rather than trying to determine what the cause of that is. And, and maybe they improve things for a short period of time, but then it literally pops up later in a much worse situation. 
Yeah. And, and that can be devastating, especially for a smaller organization. You know, yeah. it could even be mission critical and that, that could be a real issue. And, and so I think that's what I bring. I, I ask, I listen a lot. I ask a lot of questions, uh, maybe sometimes too much, but <laughs> I kind of do it to push people. To, yeah. And I'm not expecting an answer right away. Many times it's like, well, go away and think about it. And then let's come back at our next meeting and have a conversation about it. And it's trying to get people through that, their, their personal change or their personal belief structure around it. And sometimes, especially for smaller owner operators or founders, they're the ones that are getting in the way of their success. They were really good when they were smaller and they could touch everything. But now that it's expanded, they can't touch everything and they want to. And so they, they get a lot of energy and reward and achievement by jumping in and solving this technical problem or this financial problem or talking to customers, which is great, but you're now overseeing an entire organization and that can feel uncomfortable. And so sometimes it's nice to have somebody, I like to think of myself as kind of a strategic guide. So it's, it's nice to kind of have a guide every now and then that you can kind of lean on and go, well, what do you think? I am coaching, I'm sure for you, is the same thing. And it, it's those types of things that I think I, I offer when I, when I work with advisory boards. Well, Alan, this has been, uh, this has been delightful and very helpful in terms of thinking about, I, I love the concept of ecology. I think such a cool concept and for your perspective on it, but also how you come at thinking as an advisor is really helpful as well. So let's assume a CEO is listening to this. And the concept of ecology sparks something in them. What type of counsel would you give them in terms of considering the importance of it and the value they can get from like getting an advisor, maybe getting an advisory board, but more importantly, how to think about ecology? How, what simply would you say to them as a starting place? I think as a starting place is they have to ask themselves, are they open? They have to look back and reflect. Where have they found their training? What, what is it more in the traditional MBA business background where that, you know, you're, you're trying to command and control. Mm. If that's where you're coming from and you want to go to an ecology perspective, you can't continue to hold that same perspective. You've got to be open to the fact that things can, I'm not saying they run autonomously, but most people, and certainly people I've met, go to places to work, not to slack off, not to get right. the most money and not do anything. They want to contribute. They want to add yes. value. But something stops from when they arrive within a, sometimes in a very short period of time, sometimes in a longer period of time, that then ends up to be that problem employee. And then that becomes the focus of senior management going, but they have to go back. And even themselves, like they became CEOs. Why did they become CEOs? What, what is it that they wanted? They wanted to create something that was different than where they were before. And how do they put their vision on, on that? And it, so if they can't come from that human-centric perspective, you know, I'll be upfront with somebody to say, you know, you can continue to do what you do and have fun. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just not going to be a fit for what I can offer you. But it really starts at that senior level. And so that's why I meet with the senior leaders and their senior team and start those discussions and, and open that up and, and also kind of explore what's their story, like you've done with me on this podcast. Where did they come from? What did that influence in them? And, and then how does that serve them moving forward? Or is it something that maybe we need to put that in a bag and just drop that bag? It's no longer right. serving you in the future. So good. Well, I always like to end these conversations with some sort of rapid fire questions and not, a, not many of them, but they're just, it's a way to wrap this in terms of well, the human of you. You've come across as this brilliant expert who drinks chai tea, but I, I still like to have some strange questions just to finish that off. So answer as little as much as you want, but Mac or PC? Oh, definitely Mac. No, sorry. My apologies. That was my Freudian slip. I heard my Wife Carlin come in. She's the Mac user. I'm the PC user. I have to work at a university there, not Mac. Oh, right, right, right. So you're a you're you're sort of a split family. That's interesting. What a split family, but I have very little understanding of the Mac world. Got it. Okay. So what book has most significantly shaped you 
more than any other? And and I realize that's a massive question because I know you're a deep learner, but wow. is there a book that has had a profound influence in your entire life? I would say a book that's, that's a that's a great question, by the way. I, you know, I think, because I'm an active reader, yep. and as you know, I think that's how we, you, one of the things when you came to interview me for your TV show, you spent most of your time looking at my bookshelf and you kind of like, you know, we read the same, same stuff. I think, and this is going to sound bizarre, but it's the Zen and Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Kerr. Yep. That book to me is, I've read it numerous times. Every time I read it, I get something more from it, but it's a great philosophical discussion about the concept of quality and what it means to you and, and, and how to live a quality life. And so I think it's not a business book per se. It just resonates with me. Beautiful. What was the first question you asked chat GPT? Well, the first, well, the first question, that's funny you say that because last fall I had to, because I work in a university environment, it was really coming on. I actually was giving it some prompts to see if it could complete an assignment that I felt the student had used it to complete the assignment to see if they actually were using it. And uh, I verified that they did. And so unfortunately for that student, they ended up with an academic integrity charge on their transcript because it's using a third-party source that they didn't source as part of that process. But it is interesting. I have another colleague that has really embraced this math who I teach with and he's at another college. Uh, he teaches at McMaster part-time in one of the courses that I run, Entrepreneurial Thinking and Innovation. And he's developed the whole thing for educators on how to teach them how to do prompts more effectively right. to build assignments and quizzes and, and case studies. And so he's put a whole little training platform together. And I'm starting that process uh, this coming month to go through that. That's delightful. What was the last thing you completely nerded out on? Well, I mean, it would be probably uh, coming up with a pulley system to hang my racing canoes in my garage. So I use old climbing hardware and pulleys and uh, prussics to, to pull my uh, canoes up so they rest above my car, and then I can just unhook them and uncleat them and bring them down. So Beautiful. Well, my friend, this is uh, this has been delightful. I have learned a lot and I appreciate you sharing. And we will make sure that we give people the, uh, ways to connect with you on LinkedIn and uh, anywhere else. What else would you say as we complete this conversation? Any uh, Anything you want to direct people to or recommendations or anything as we com conclude? Well, I mean, if they want to connect with me, LinkedIn is the, is the best way to do that. I don't actually have a website because I, most of the the work that I get um, from a guiding perspective is related to word of mouth. Um, so that's the best way to reach me. And if you if you want to look at a company that gets it, especially if you're in, in the U.S., uh, Patagonia, you know, Yvonne Chouinard, it is a good, a good example of a mid-sized company working in a very competitive industry, garment manufacturing and retailing in a very niche market that gets it. You know, I don't know if you know, but he is... You know, rather than selling the firm, he has sold it to nature. And so he's created a trust. So all the profits moving forward, don't go to his family. Don't go to uh, any shareholders. They go to nature foundations. So pretty cool. Interesting. Well, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I appreciate you being on the yeah. show. Great to reconnect, Tom. Thanks so much for having me.